Hello and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, season two, Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other guy. All right. So last episode, we talked about Godfather Part 2. And the next movie, you're right, the next movie Coppola directed was Apocalypse Now. But being completists, we have to cover the TV event called The Godfather Saga, which aired on NBC in 1977 in which the first two movies were edited together in chronological order and shown like a mini-series over four nights. Um, It's hard to track down, but uh, thanks to a good friend of the podcast, we were able to track it down. So that is what we are discussing today. Thank you, Joe Shivers. Vulcan video veteran. (laughs) So I guess, what are you drinking first? Tell me. I am drinking the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Red Blend 2017. I don't think we've had this one before. No. My wife was out at Target and noticed they had a bunch of Coppola wines that uh, we hadn't had before. So she grabbed a whole bunch. And this is one of them. I thought it was appropriate for today being a blend. And we're watching a blend of two movies. Uh, let's see what the legend is here. So it's got the usual dramatic style, vibrant packaging, and fruit-forward smooth wines are the signature of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Diamond Red Blend has a velvety texture and fragrant notes of violets, spices, and toasted oak layered with rich, luscious flavors of blueberries, cherries, and plum. Pairs beautifully with grilled meats, and aged cheeses. Learn more about our wines at FrancisFordCoppolaWinery.com. I could go for some aged cheeses with or without wine. That would be pretty good. Uh, yeah, it definitely is smooth. Would go well with cheese. Um, I'm not sure what a velvety drink would be. So I guess it is velvety. Yeah, maybe that's referring to like the texture. I'm actually drinking, in memory of our dearly departed friend Fredo, a banana daiquiri. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, the first time we watched it last episode, I didn't quite think about it. But then this time I'm like, man, he drinks a lot of banana daiquiris. And it's that great part when he's like, like, hey, Michael, how how do you say uh, banana daiquiri in Spanish? And then Michael says, banana daiquiri. And uh, I feel like it was a, it's a good symbol of his weakness because he's like, you know, this coward, you know, who tried to kill his brother uh, and caved so easily into in giving up the info. And he's drinking banana daiquiris. I think it maybe like it was, it's like implying that this is a coward's drink is a banana daiquiri, not, not a masculine drink, I guess. I think they taste great. I'm excited. I made a whole blender full of banana daiquiris. I've never had a banana daiquiri. Highly recommend it. I'll have to check it out. I, I think I have the ingredients for a banana daiquiri. It's just a lot of rum. It's uh, it's uh, really, yeah, just a lot of rum and bananas. <laughs> you throw it in a blender with a few other little ingredients. Like if you just Google banana daiquiri, all sorts of recipes come up for it. I opted for the one that doesn't include coconut milk. 
So I'm trying to be healthy. <laughs> and, and so I went with the fresh banana daiquiri recipe, allrecipes.com. And it's really good. It's just, it's just uh, some, some triple sec, some lime juice, some sugar, bananas, and a whole lot of rum and some ice. It's a great summer drink. Fredo was right. So the ones in the movies he has, like, it looks like he has like a pile of whipped cream on it. I wasn't gonna go that crazy. So I guess there's not really need for synopsis. Um, Maybe yeah. Sort of explain sort of how the order works for people who haven't seen it. Maybe just break that part down since we already know the plot. The yeah, so um, the title is The Godfather Epic 1901-1959. to uh, So it begins where Godfather 2 begins in Sicily, 1901. Young Vito Corleone's whole family's been murdered by the local mafia boss. He escapes to New York. Next scene, he's... Uh, young Robert De Niro, and then we see the rise of young Vito building up uh, you know, his mafia power. Then I assume there's, that's where episode one would have ended. I'm not entirely sure. But then it jumps to Godfather Part 1, and you then proceed to watch all of Godfather Part 1 with some additional footage, so there's new stuff there. Then you watch it fades and jumps to Godfather Part Two, all of the 1950 stuff with Michael and Hyman Roth and Miami and Cuba, and then the Senate hearing. And that on its own is like two and a half hours. Yeah, I, I paused it when it started to be like, how long is the Godfather Two when you take out the, the De Niro stuff? And it's still a two and a half hour movie. <laughs> watch a big movie where in the middle of that movie is the godfather it's it's very strange it it is a strange experience um it really does feel it really feels like a tv show when uh yeah. when you're watching it and we talked about that in the last episode that it's like this stuff kind of feels like what hbo has been doing for the last 20 years you know 22 years whenever the soprano started it just has that big it feels like a book, which meant, which uh, the original title of the TV movie was The Godfather, a novel for television. So it makes sense. It really feels like you're just reading this big, sprawling book about this, fa this, this family. Um, it's interesting. I've never seen this version before. Have, did you see it? Have you seen it before? I had not seen it in its entirety. I had only caught parts of it when it aired, I think, on like Bravo way back in the day when Bravo still showed like uh, art house type stuff. Um, but I was only trying to watch the, uh, the changeovers from one movie to the next. I wasn't actually sitting down and watching each individual part. But because of that, there were scenes. This time around, you didn't sit through the whole thing? No, no, this time I did. Oh, this time you did, okay. Yeah, when I was watching it on, on Bravo when I was like 13 or something. Yeah, I didn't actually watch the whole thing. No, this time I sat and watched the whole thing. In fact, uh, we, we got this digital file. It was so big. It was in two, three and a half hour chunks. I watched the first part in one sitting. It happened I was able to watch three and a half hours of a movie I've already seen totally uninterrupted. Wow. Uh, and the second, the second chunk I, I had to watch over like two days. 
I did it. I did it in one sitting. I started at nine in the morning, and I finished it in the evening, and it was great. It aired on TV in multiple parts, and there are breaks. You can tell where there's uh, breaks added in for when each segment ended, yeah. but it still plays so much better the more you can watch it without interruption. I agree. Uh, it really was rewarding to watch it in one big swoop. I think if anyone has the time and maybe some people do right now because we're all still stuck at home in most places. If you have a day and you can track this down, watch it in one sitting if you're, if you're able to. And it, it, did, it did air on HBO recent-ish, like in the last few years. So I wonder if that, and, that, and I think that's a version we watched. Um, so I wonder how hard it is to find for people on the internet or wherever in the world. It's interesting. A lot of people I've talked to, this was the first time they watched The Godfather was this version. Hmm. Um, like, I, like either their library, this is what they had at the library or the video store or whatever. But it's interesting to think of this being the first time you see these movies. Um, I wouldn't recommend it for the first time. I think it's much more rewarding to watch the way they originally were made and then go back and watch this when you want to revisit it because then it's interesting to get out of it what you already know and then more, you know? You're think- right, because it starts out with um, young Vito. And as we mentioned in our last episode, you don't really care about these scenes unless you already know Don Vito at, you know, at, from Marlon Brando from the first movie. And so that's the first, I think it's an hour and 15 minutes is all of the young Vito stuff put together with some extra added in footage. And it really just feel, it feels quick because it is, and it feels really choppy because it's just jumping around through the different milestones in his uh, rise in the world of crime. And the only real attachment you feel for the for this character of young Vito removed from you know who you know Don Corleone to be it later on in the the saga is like well this is just a he's an immigrant just trying to do the best he can with working against the disadvantages that he faces and it's a great still a great performance from Robert De Niro but there's just not a lot of substance there. You really feel like those are flashback scenes meant to support a different, a different story. I don't know. I, I think I, I really liked watching the first part all edited together because in part two, the original version, it, go, it, it jumps in between all the stuff with, uh, with Michael and it kind of comments, it kinda, they kind of they comment each other and work together uh, thematically. And seeing it all in one big chunk really let me understand kind of more what was going on, like let me piece things together. And then the same with once you get into the meat of Godfather 2 at the end of this, big, of this big version of it, it allowed me to really follow the whole trajectory of like all these characters, you know, from this family young to the older. And it just helped me to focus and kind of pick up on things I didn't notice before. Or just sort of like, oh, they're talking about that guy and that's that guy or what, you know, like it's, I think it is rewarding. But like, again, I think it's like you have to have seen it before, before the the original way. (laughs) Because like you can't beat the beginning of the original Godfather and the ending of that. And when it's put in the middle, 
the impact of those moments aren't quite the same. It just feels more like, it almost feels like a commercial break when it's like, and it fades in because there's a lot of fade in, fade out. And you feel like, okay, cut to commercial and it doesn't have the same oomph that you get from watching the original version. One of the added scenes in the Young Vito segment is him meeting a young Hyman Roth. And his name is actually Hyman something else. And uh, young Clemenza, he says, we're going to change his name. Don't worry about that. And Don Vito says, well, who's the man you most admire? And this young kid says, Arnold Rothstein. He says, then we'll call you Hyman Roth. <laughs> and then they all go out and look at the uh, Jenko olive oil store. And they're real proud. And then, you know, six hours later or whatever, old Hyman Roth is now a huge player in in the action. And that really does feel like a TV show, you know, setting up something really early on in like season one, and now it's paying off in like season five, huge. And it shows you how like far removed everything is from the early days in like the 1920s. Uh, that's what I, that's the effect I really got out of watching this all pieced together in those later, like the late 50s uh, Michael scenes, is feeling how distant, how far removed it is from young Vito and young Clemenza and young Tessio just stealing dresses to try and make some some extra money. And now Michael's basically like a like a big businessman you know, as far as the legitimate world is concerned. And, and it's interesting watching it again. I picked, like I said, I picked up on stuff I didn't notice before. And like, there's that shot from Godfather 1 where it's all the crime families around the table and the camera's kind of panning from left, from right, from right to left, like across all, like as they're naming all the heads of the families. And then that shot is repeated in part two where they're in Cuba and it's all these heads of these corporations basically around the table meeting with the the Cuban president, I think. Is that who that is? Yeah. And it's the same people, but it's, but it's more like they're companies that they work for, and Michael's part of that. And it just shows the chain from one era from the next. Like, Vito sat down with, like, heads of families. Michael sits down with heads of corporations. But it's shot the same way, which is really great. And I think I wouldn't have noticed that if I didn't watch them back-to-back in the same thing. You know, because we watched the one and the one two weeks later, I just didn't think about it. But it's like it's the exact same shots, basically, just showing, you know, the change. <laughs> the change as we get further in the 20th century. It's no longer just some guy walking around the street buying fruit from you and helping your family out. Now it's like these guys who want to get into drug trafficking and casinos and you know, bigger business uh, ventures. Yeah, those scenes of the 1950s in part two flow really fast yet so whenever it would cut from one michael is leaving lake tahoe and now he's in miami and then he leaves miami and he goes to new york those were broken up by flashbacks to the to the de niro stuff yeah but that's not there so it's just like it's just so it moves so quick and i've always depending on my mood i guess i'll find the the michael scenes in part two either compelling or boring but since this action was all happening like really 
uh, really succinctly. I was I was really drawn into it until what's always my least favorite part is the the Senate trial. Yeah. To me, it seems well, it comes out of nowhere. Like it's just cut to uh, there's a mafia guy in front of the the Senate who's investigating the mafia. I guess this is it hasn't been set up previously. Yeah. <laughs> it just like, kind of happens. <laughs> yeah, like, and then in another scene, Tom Hagen explains, like, oh, like, they didn't actually kill, uh, they didn't actually kill Frank Pantangeli, and the FBI has him, and he's going to come and testify before the Senate and blow the lid off this whole mafia thing. That's not established before we actually see the Senate trial. And Senate trials in films, I, I never like them. <laughs> they all play the same. There's a bunch of old dudes behind a very long raised desk table. And then them just like talking into the leaning forward and talking in their little mics. And then there's like a bunch of people sitting there and them just being like, oh, like, it's not true. Oh, it's true. It's it's really like, do you mean to tell me that you have no knowledge of and then like, and then the guy on trial will be like, Senator, what I mean is a smug quip. And then the chamber erupts like. Well, you know, someday we'd be lucky enough if John Grisham can make like a Senate trial and make an interesting thriller out of that. Then that'll be one more worth watching. But until then, he's got to deal with it. Just feels like C-SPAN. It just feels like and they're all shot the same way, too. Like they're never interesting. It always just like is wide shots so you can get all the million senators around. <laughs> Did you notice that one of the senators was Roger Corman? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think we talked about that last episode, but it's totally Roger Corman, uh, which is great because uh, we talked in many episodes ago. That's sort of like how Coppola got his start. So it was really cool that he you know, had his pal Roger show up as one of the uh, evil senators. I think Richard Matheson is another one of them. I read, I think that's right. The writer. Yes. I don't know what he looks like, so I couldn't tell you which one he was, but he's one of those guys. <laughs> Why him? I don't know, because we didn't really come across any connection between Richard Matheson and Coppola, so I don't know why he's a part of that cameo. I mean, it's a, not even a cameo, because nobody actually knows who he is, like what he looks like. like normal people don't know who Richard Matheson is. Um, for those who don't know, he is a writer. He wrote a lot of episodes of Twilight Zone. He's a great sci-fi uh, fantasy writer. He wrote the story that uh, I Am Legend, right? Isn't that Richard Matheson? Yeah, he wrote I Am Legend and, I mean, so many of the great Twilight Zone episodes. I believe he wrote Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with, you know, Shatner and the thing on the wing. Yeah, that seems right. What were some other things you noticed that you didn't notice the first time around watching it again? I noticed a lot of like little touches that are so small. I wasn't sure if they were added in for this version or if I just missed them the first time. Like when um, Tom Hagen goes to talk with the movie producer and the movie producer is going on about uh, like why he's pissed off at Johnny Fontaine because uh, Johnny Fontaine slept with this girl that he was grooming for himself. And there's just a quick shot of Tom Hagen rolling his eyes. <laughs> That's pretty good. 
the I noticed that uh, in the first part, the De Niro part, the young Vito part, young Clemenza is constantly eating, <laughs> which explains how he gets very like his how he goes from Bruno Kirby to the much pudgier actor in part one. But like, there's like so many scenes where he's just like got food in his hand. He's just eating food, and I thought that was funny. Um, there's a uh, a part where they're at a fruit stand, and this is in the part one part. And there's a Jake Lamada poster in the background, like a poster uh, advertising a Jake Lamada boxing match. And for those of you who don't know, Jake Lamada is the character from Raging Bull, played by Robert De Niro. So I thought that was interesting. I was really into this time around all of the James Con breaking up a piece of bread and dunking it in the, the cooking tomato sauce on the stove. He does that more than once. Do you notice that? Like he'll like be in the kitchen talking to somebody. Yeah. There'll be a pot of pasta sauce and he'll, there'll be like a piece of, like a loaf of bread on top of the fridge nearby and he'll just like break a piece up and dunk it in the sauce and walk around and eat it and walk around the house eating it. And I'd like to think that that's just like bread for him or for whoever making the sauce to taste it, to test it. It's like, okay, we have the bread. Whenever we cook tomato sauce, you have the bread next to it. You just break up a piece and that's how you t- try it out. So that was pretty good. And I hope they did a lot of takes. And I hope James Conn ate a lot of bread. Uh, I noticed that there were the sounds of children and crying babies throughout nearly every scene at least up until the uh, the Senate trial part. But just at any given moment, there's like a child will run through the scene or they'll turn a corner and there's some little children playing or there's a baby crying in the background. Just emphasizing the whole like, like big Italian family aspect and also the emphasizing the, the idea that you're, uh, you know, you're providing for your family and then yeah, the juxtaposition sure. of there's crime meeting serious deadly crime going on and then like little small innocent children running in the background yeah i noticed the weird uh, connection between oranges and death so you have like marlon brando looking at some oranges and that's when he gets shot when he's like at a market like leaving the car he gets shot the part at, near the end of the, or the part of the Godfather when he puts the orange in his mouth to scare his grandson is when he dies. And then the point when Michael in part two like determines completely that he's going to kill Fredo, he's eating an orange. And he's eating it in the weirdest way. I've never seen anyone eat an orange this way. Did you notice this? Where it's like partially peeled and he's just like sucking the juice out of a fresh orange or something. It's so strange. And it's in the scene where he's like, it's in the scene where he's kind of basically saying like, we're going to kill my brother. So there's this weird orange death connection in these movies, which is interesting. Also, I don't know if you noticed, but right before Robert De Niro kills the, uh, the white suited mafia boss, Finucci, he buys oranges or yep. takes oranges from some vendor. Yeah. What, it, what does it mean? What is the symbol? Why? I don't know, because then there's a scene, I noted this and, and didn't, we didn't mention it, where uh, when it cuts to young Vito after he's killed Finucci and he's in power, he's getting some fruit from a vendor and the fruit guy gives him a bag of oranges 
and De Niro tries to pay for them. And the guy says, no, no, you, you, don't, you don't have to pay. And De Niro says, okay, you did me a favor. Now I owe you a favor. You let me know whatever it is and I'll, I'll help you. But then he doesn't die for, you know, another like 30 years. So I don't know <laughs> what that is, but after a while, yeah, you'd notice oranges. <laughs> a lot of oranges. Another thing I noticed is the style that Al Pacino, that Michael is rocking when he's in Cuba, is the style that Andy Garcia has been rocking for the last 30 years. He's, he's dressed up like Andy Garcia, or I mean, Andy Garcia now dresses like Michael Corleone in Godfather Part Two when he goes to Cuba. You're right, like, hair back, like a neckerchief. Like a scarf thing. Like, and then, and of course, Andy Garcia will show up in Godfather Three. But I thought it was funny. I was like, did he just watch Godfather Two and say, this is how I'm going to dress for the last 20 years. I'm going to just wear this, this scarf, Ascotis. It's almost it's like, yeah, like this weird scarf it tucked into like a suit jacket with your hair. Like, it, like he doesn't wear a hat. Like Andy Garcia wears hats a lot. So Michael doesn't wear a hat at all in this movie. But like, but yeah, it, it, it rang some Garcia bells when I saw those scenes the second time around. Here's a weird one I noticed. So Frank. Severo, the guy from The Wedding Singer, and he's in Goodfellas, and in, and in part two he plays Jenko, the, the, the kid whose dad owns the grocery store in the De Niro parts. That actor you can see in the background in a scene from Godfather 1 when James Caan is kicking the shit out of Talia Shire's husband. He's an extra in the background, like when like the fire hydrant is going. Like you see that act, the same actor and it's funny when he watched in order because he's in the movie with De Niro as his young friend in like 1910 or whatever, or 1920. And then you see him in like the 40s in the background is watching in, a, in the back of a crowd watching James Caan. So like if you watch it this way, you can kind of almost think of like, is this like a ghost? Is this supposed <laughs> to be the son? Is this like the ghost kid in Three Men and a Baby that you're supposed to see outside the window? Like... It was so weird. I was like, that's the same actor. <laughs> that's him. <laughs> but as an extra. <laughs> and like, it's like, they, they, it's so funny because it's like, he's clearly in the shot. Like, it's not so far back. So when you watch it in order, you're like, how's that guy still alive and looking exactly the same, you know, 30, 40 years later? <laughs> that makes you wonder, like, is it the, like, one of the kids of Janko who decided not to get into the mafia business. And that's why Tom Hagen had to become consigliere because it's, it's um, established in this uh, Godfather saga, like it is in the book, but Jenko, his friend from the grocery store becomes his consigliere. And there's an added scene to the Godfather one where after the wedding, Godfather and all his sons, they go visit Janko, who's dying in the hospital. He's worried because he doesn't know who uh, the new consigliere is going to be. And then in this really like moving moment, he asks the Godfather to heal him. It reminded me of this thing called the King's Sickness or something, where one of, since kings were, you know, supposedly endowed by God to lead, you know, nations of people. They could also heal people on command, which never, you know, it never really panned out whenever they would try it. 
in the saga, it further emphasizes if this was left in Godfather Part One, it would set up that Vito is a king, and he's the good king, who, you know, you would think who can do anything for you to help you. So maybe he can even, you know, cure the the illness that's that's about to take your life, and then Tom Hagen fully becomes consigliere in the next scene, and it's a big deal in the book because that whole chapter is told from Tom Hagen's point of view. Um, that doesn't really read in the movie. And, yeah. you know, it would have required too many scenes to emphasize how big a deal this was for Tom Hagen. I love that scene. Like, I'm glad they put that scene back or in this version. It was really, that seems really good. And that was like the first, like, I was really like, whoa, like, this is a new thing. Like, they're leaving the wedding to go visit this guy in the hospital. And it's a character that we know when he's young. Like, that was really exciting. There's a lot of really exciting new stuff that makes things make, like, it kind of opens, like, it kind of adds to the epicness of the whole story. Like, you have, in the first early Vito stuff with De Niro, you have more people he kills in Sicily when he seeks vengeance on the, on the mafia family that killed his parents. And he kills them all himself. By himself, like he does it, he smothers a guy in bed, or he kills a guy in bed, he kills a guy on a boat. Because like in the original version, you just see him kill the head guy and that's it, right? Yeah. This one you see like, oh, the guy who was walking around town asking where little Vito was, like you can kill him, you can kill this guy. And it's like, this, it, I really love that they put all that stuff in there. When he kills the guy in the boat, it's like, I can't believe you'd cut this scene because it's so glorious and ridiculous, but also like pretty, pretty badass is he's out on the lake or the sea and he rows up in a boat next to this other guy and then asks him something. And when the guy's thinking about it, he takes his oar and bangs him over the head until he's dead. It's a drive-by boat killing. Drive-by boating. And, and Vito, it's a further thing that like it makes you, almost endears you to Vito Corleone. Like he's killing he's killing people, but he's doing it himself. He's not giving the order and then sitting back in his cushiony chair. He's out there doing it himself. Yeah, he's like, these people need to die, well, I'm gonna be the one to do it. <laughs> And I loved those scenes. There was that great extra scene with Finucci where he's beaten up by like kids basically in an alley and gets his throat cut. And that was an interesting scene that kind of goes like, it kind of makes that character more vulnerable. You know, like as in the original version of Godfather 2, he seems like this big character. And then when De Niro and Little Vito kills him, it's like a big deal. But in this version, they're like, well, he already was almost killed by a bunch of kids. It was the <laughs> yeah. show. He's not as strong as you think he is. He's not as powerful as you think. And it kind of builds more on how nobody really likes him. <laughs> nobody really respects him. You can have a gang of teenagers basically beat him up and try to kill him in the street or in the alleyway. There's an, also an added scene where Clemenza and Vito and Tessio go to sell the guns that Vito held for him and they go to a gun dealer named Augustino Coppola who has a young son named Carmine that he brings out to play the flute uh, for <laughs> them while they're looking at the guns and wouldn't you know 
that uh, these are the names of Coppola's father and grandfather. Carmine Coppola played the flute professionally in a symphony before he became a conductor. So it's a nice touch and I further understand why Coppola uh, throughout the commentary would say that this was the most personal film he, that he had made up till that point. Yeah, part two. There, there was, uh, and then in part, the scenes from part two, you have, I think, more meetings that Michael has during his son's communion party. Like, cause I don't remember that scene where there's just like that couple that shows up that wants like a blessing. Like, was that in the original? I don't remember. No, those were all added. The more meetings were added in. Um, that is Sonny's daughter asking for his blessing yeah. to marry some like young med student or something. That was really good because it definitely leans even more into like the similarities to the beginning of part one of like there's this big family event that's happening, but he's taking all these meetings with all these people, some for little reasons, some for bigger reasons. And I really like I really liked all that stuff. It was really interesting. Um, and the big scene that they added in part two was that you see them kill the guy who killed Michael's first wife in Sicily. And it's really weird because it really does feel like it doesn't really fit in <laughs> where it is. And maybe that's why they cut it out because it just seems like, like a total, to, it's like a different movie. Like it's just like, oh, and now remember that guy who blew up the car that Michael's original wife was in? Like now we'll blow up him in his car because he runs like a pizza parlor now in New York or whatever. And it's just like dropped right at the end of all that communion party uh, stuff and it just feels it doesn't work it doesn't fit it feels very weird like that should have been a scene in the first movie and they put it way later in the part of the second movie here and it is so that did not work for me it, it, it really weird. didn't um that they don't make a big deal out of it no it's like okay we're tying up this loose end from the first movie and in the book uh, that character does get blown up as part of the whole montage of death during the baptism scene, but they just didn't put it in the first movie. I, for whatever reason, I don't know why. So then they tack it in the beginning of this second movie and it's like, hey, like we found that guy, here's a photo of him now, and here's a photo of him back then. So you, the audience know it's the same guy. Yeah. And Michael's like, okay, do it. And then cuts to him leaving his pizzeria turns on his car and it blows up and then like wipe your hands like we're done with that moving on to the rest of the plot it the, like if that character fed into the plot of part two and he died later on it, it would mean something more but it feels so tacked on it does like you don't because you don't get you don't really get much before that you don't really get al pacino's character you don't get michael being like oh yes we must kill him like there's no setup to it it's like it's really like mentioned briefly in a meeting like at the end of some other meeting they're like oh we found this guy by the way and michael's like yep that's him and they're like oh okay and then you see him die and there's no thing afterward of like well that's like i have closure or i don't have like there's it's like so it doesn't, they shouldn't have included it. It's very weird. It doesn't work. No, also uh, included in there is a scene of one of Michael's new guys, um, Rocco, one of his capo regimes, going up to a casino boss and like pushing him around. And it's a good scene in itself. 
yeah. he goes up to this guy at the table. He's like, hey, I represent the Corleone family and you're going to sell us you know, your share in the casino. And he's like, what? Get out of here. He's like, hey, you didn't hear me. You're pack your bags and you're done by the end of this week. And the guy calls for security. And then he slaps him in the head, but not like across his face. It's more like he smacks, like he's smacking a bug on him like really hard and smacks his glasses off his face. And then he just keeps doing that until the guy runs into a different room and he keeps smacking him until the guy's like, all right, fine, fine. You can have my casino. It's really- I like that part. <laughs> I like it. But the problem with that and the, uh, the scene of the bodyguard getting blown up is they come right after Michael, uh, you know, laying out his plans or taking meetings at the first communion. Then there's those scenes. And then it cuts back to the night of the first communion where um, uh, his house gets shot up. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's weird because it makes it seem like, did these things happen in the same day? Yeah, that's, it, that's why it feels so weird. Like, I like the scene we just talked about with the casino guy. But yeah, where it's placed is odd. Like, it's odd that it's put there because I feel it would have worked better a few minutes later, I think, because it works so well that you have this communion thing and then Michael gets, like, there's an assassination attempt. I think that all moves together and it makes sense. And going to these other places, these other towns, like going to Vegas, going to New York City or whatever out of Lake Tahoe is jarring and it just feels weird. Uh, and if I had not ever seen Godfather 2 and saw it, this version, it would still feel weird. It still would be like, wait, what's going on? And Because then it goes back. And those two parts are never really talked about. They just happen. Um, I do like that casino scene, though, because it does feel more like a Martin Scorsese movie. <laughs> and it seems like something that would be in a Martin Scorsese movie, like that sort of like, I love, it's that kind of scene of, of uh Guy goes into somebody's place where they're the, the powerful one and someone's like, fuck you. And the other guy's like, no, fuck you. And then they just get embarrassed and the shit kicked out of them. That seems yeah, like and such the fight, a it's like the Scorsese mafia movies, they're really messy and <laughs> like nothing really happens the way ideally you would imagine it going. The killings are always really messy. And here's one kind of not in the best shape guy telling this other like, old uh pudgy guy like you're gonna do what i say and that guy's like like get out of here he has a like he's a total old nerd and then all right now i have to beat you up but i'm gonna smack you weirdly on the top corner of your head repeat i'm not gonna punch you i don't have bigger guys to come and beat you up i'm gonna just smack you repeatedly it's really it's really good so speaking of this part of the movie, watching it again, do you agree with me that Fredo's the one who opened the curtains? I am more inclined. I'm still not willing to commit, like to push a button, but I like way, I, I'm, I'm way more open to that theory now. Who, who else could have done it? Like the, the, the security that was already there at the party, right? So maybe it was a little lax outside that someone at this big party could sneak around. But for someone to be able to walk around, like to be able to walk around Michael's house, go in his bedroom, there's no way they would just let some randos do that. I don't, I mean, unless that's where everybody was using the bathroom. I, I don't know. 
but where everyone's like coats the, were. Was it? <laughs> no. Like the way it's set up now, it's like he's taking these meetings, and it feels very much like people who come in and out of there are kind of regulated in a way. That, but like your brother could totally walk into the bedroom, and no one would care, and no one would think twice about Fredo walking into his brother's bedroom for any reason. You'd be like, whatever is his brother opens curtains. Um, but it is funny though, that <laughs> Michael's wife played by Dan Keaton doesn't notice her up until she's already in bed. So it's like, you think while she's like undressing or getting ready for bed, she'd be like, Oh, better close the curtains. <laughs> you know, like I'm not getting naked or going to bed with the windows wide open. So why did she wait till she's in bed and be like, Oh, weird. Why are the curtains open? And luckily, Michael's quick, you know, to pick up what that means. But it's totally Fredo. Who else? Who else could go incognito in and out of that house? Open up the curtains. Know that that's his bedroom. Know that that's his bedroom. Know that he will be there in front, getting re- like it just feels like, like someone had to tell the hitman or whatever. Like that's his bedroom. It's in this part of the house. I will open the curtains. You can do it. You know, I feel like if I was on the jury, if we were, if this was 12 Angry Men for whether or not Fredo actually did that, I guess ultimately I would have to, I would have to side with, with your theory. Because you're right, it's, uh, yeah, the other assumption is that these hitmen came in like, you know, weeks in advance to study the super secure Corleone compound inside and out. No way. It had to be the brother being like, here's the blueprint. Here's his bedroom. I will open up the blinds and then he'll come into the room and then shoot him. Cause like you're on this big lake. So you can easily have someone sneak in from outside in a way. You know, like if you're in Lake Tahoe, there's like tons of houses around that. So like even with security, there is a way to sneak. Like, and they never explain how these hit men sneak in other than, his brother probably let them in, you know, <laughs> like, but like, so that's easy, but to be in the house, like if some stranger was walking out of Michael Corleone's bedroom, the amount of heavies that he has around him, someone would have been like, Hey, who the fuck are you? What are you doing in here? You know, like, is he having meetings all day? Like he's in the house all day. Like there's nobody else in the house, but him and his family and the people he's meeting with. And like, you know, like there's like, you know, oh, Diane Keaton's talking to the senator's wife when he leaves his meetings. There's like some people are allowed to hang out in there. But it doesn't feel like a free-for-all. Like, the, like it doesn't feel like anyone can just mosey in and walk around. Oh, I just, I think, I, I stand by my theory that he is guilty. A hundred percent. He deserves everything he had coming <laughs> With uh, these added scenes, there is more of a mirroring within the respective movie segments. And added into the part two scene at the, towards the end of the first communion, there's a scene of Frank Pentangeli talking to Anthony, Michael's son, and he's being really kind to him. And I think he even does a magic trick and he gives him like a teaspoon of wine and then gives him like a hundred dollars or a 50. And it's like, you keep that, put it under your pillow. Don't let anyone know you have it. And he's, he's being very kind to, to young Anthony. 
and then Michael has him killed. To me, then that mirrors how Fredo also has scenes with young Anthony, who he's very kind to, and we're going to go out fishing, and I'm going to tell you my secret trick to catching fish. And Michael has that person killed. So it's like this young boy had two actually positive experiences with grown men. And like, hey, hey, this is how like a man should act, you know, towards his children. And his actual father has both of those people killed. <laughs> Don't ever be nice to a, a Mafia Don's son. That's the, that's the lesson learned. Uh... In the first movie, in that scene we talked about with the Godfather and all his sons going to visit Jenko in the hospital, before that, there's a scene where he, where the Godfather talks to Michael about like, well, now you're out of the army. What are your plans? And they're basically talking about Michael's future. And you get the sense that Vito really didn't like Michael joining the Marines. And now that they're back, he's going to, you know, they're going to have to like reestablish their relationship. And then there's another scene with Michael and Vito in the hospital where all of Vito's guards have been sent away and Michael notices that the hospital's totally empty and people are coming to kill his father. And so he moves him to a different hospital room and then he whispers to Vito, like, I'm with you now, Pop. And like Vito kind of hears that and smiles. And so you have one scene at the beginning now where Michael is unsure about where he stands with his father in a hospital. And now there's, then there's a later scene where he tells his father fully, I'm with you now. Yeah. It's good. I feel like with all the extra scenes in order, it really does like shine a light on how epic the story is. Like you, you of course pick up on that when you watch the original versions because they're so long and that just kind of adds to epic or it used to, not anymore. Now that every movie is three hours long, but like just having this bit, like starting with, the Vita going from 1901 to 1959 or whatever, like it really gives it more of this big epic feel. Like it definitely makes it feel bigger, even though it's on TV, which is interesting, but it, it kind of adds to like, oh man, this is like one big sprawling story with all these characters in it. And, uh, and like, I think that's like the best part of watching this version of it is you really get like, oh, this is like a big thing. This is a big story with a lot of people and about this one family from, for more than half a century, you're following this whole family. And it just, it really, like it makes it feel more like a once upon a time in America. You know, it makes it feel more like a big, bigger thing. Watching it from begin chronological, watching it grow, the family grow to this big crime family. It's interesting. Another interesting fact that I found out be between the two episodes we did that so the character, the, the one that Michael Gatto plays that we were just talking about, that was supposed to be Clemenza. So like the character was supposed to be Clemenza, which when you watch an order, that would have been very interesting to watch Clemenza become frustrated with how the families become and then turn on them and rat them out in court. Like that would have been a very big, interesting character arc. But I guess the actor who played Clemenza didn't want to come back because he didn't he lost weight and didn't want to gain the weight back to play Clemenza again. Like even just three years later, or whatever, he's just like, I don't want to do it. So they just wrote it 
as a different character. But if you watch it thinking of that character as Clemenza, it still totally works. Like it really does work. And it would be more like in a long running TV series. Like, yeah, this character who was like, would have been a big part of season one and season two and helped, uh, you know, the father. Now in the later season, he turns against the son. That would be a really big and interesting arc. But it still works with the diff- with this with this actor I, primarily because of the performance from Michael Vigazzo. He was, you know, he's nominated for an Oscar. He's great, but like it's just when you watch it in order, it really does make sense that the original tension was Clemenza, and how interesting would that have been to see this person who was friends with Vito when they were like kids practically, and then all the way up to the guy's son, and like when he's an old man, like that would have been an amazing. It's too bad that that actor didn't come back because that would have been a really interesting uh, character study right there, just in its own, right there. Um, another, another thing I noticed watching this movie again, is this movie, does this movie have more scenes in driveways than any movie ever made? There's so many scenes of people hanging out in driveways, figuring out a driveway, like it's the most driveway-centric series of movies, I think, of all time. You might be right. And to me, that would just ring true from all my memories of being a small child, part of a big family. We'd have big uh, family gatherings at all the holidays and weddings and whatnot. And the adults could never stop talking, even (laughs) as we were supposed to be leaving. And so I had to like say goodbye to all my little cousins and then okay now we're about to leave but no like now my dad and uncles they're talking again in the driveway and we're standing right in front of the car and i'm like we were so close to leaving like can't i go play go back and play with my cousin emily and these other cousins no 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 we're gonna leave we're gonna leave and then they talk even longer and so i just be stuck in driveways at my house at my grandparents house at like uncle's houses yeah, it's one of those little touches that's so specific. Yeah, maybe cats like just like hanging out in driveways. Maybe it's hard for them to say goodbye to their large, huge. Because like Catholics, there's a lot of them. You know, like no Catholic just has one child, never. And so, like, of course, your parties or any gathering is going to be full of so many family members that when any of them leave, you have to say goodbye to at least ten of them. You know, and then that's another 10, 20 people saying goodbye to those 10. So it ends up being just like this big crowd in a driveway, just talking, hanging out. And, uh, and I think because it's the mafia in this movie, in these movies, it's a lot of like, that's where the FBI can like legally like look at license plate numbers and write them down. And there's that great part in part one, which is in the middle of this movie where James Conn comes out and kind of just like looks at one of the guys who's taking pictures, breaks his camera and then pays for it by throwing the money on the ground. So he breaks the camera, but he does pay for it. He's like, get the fuck out of here. But then he like throws the whatever it's worth on the, on the ground. I, I like that's a really nice touch. And like the scene when Abe Vigoda knows, knows he's going to die is done in a driveway. And there's just lots of like character shows up in driveway, knows there's something going on in the house. Uh, when Michael Gatto shows up at his house and sees like all these, uh, you know, people hanging out his house, he's like, what's going on here? There's something going on inside my house. He goes in, and that, of course, Michael's in there. So there's all these, like, character revelations in a driveway. And I can't think of any, like, other movies that have this much time 
in that part of the house, like just in that the, the little cement strip where you park your cars. These movies, like one and two, lean very heavily. Like it'll be interesting when we watch part three if there's any driveway scenes in in, the, in those. Yeah, you know, I listened to both to both commentaries, and Coppola talks about a whole lot. Like he's got in mind that the person listening to this wants to know about filmmaking, like what went on behind the scenes, themes and whatnot. He's, he gives a really good movie commentary. That's not touched on. He brings up the oranges. White orange. He doesn't explain why. He just notes that uh, oranges are a, a harbinger of death. Vitamin C are very good for you. So they, they, they bring life. But yeah, the driveway thing, like it's, it's interesting. One thing I felt while watching this was that the Michael Vigazzo character, Frankie Pentangeli, is you're introduced to him and you think that he is, we kind of talked about this uh, in the last episode, that he would be really annoying and obnoxious. But as the film goes on, he's actually really likable and charming. And he injects this life. And the word that comes to mind is like joy into the movie you're just kind of glad whenever he's on screen because everything else is so serious and dour you're like oh okay good like he's he's here and he kind of like he kind of lights up the movie it really reminded me of the character that alan garfield played in the conversation also this guy you meet and you're like oh this guy seems obnoxious he's got bored he's like i'm just going to be annoyed by this guy but as his scenes go on, you're like, well, actually, no, this guy's really charming. And, you know, he has a real point about the main character. And the main character now seems more more of a creep than uh, than he did before. So th- these movies just need those balding, pudgy, loud New Yorkers to, to point out the flaws of the of the heroes, the supposed heroes. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to see if that kind of character turns up in any later Coppola movies. Yeah, in Apocalypse Now, is there a bald, loud, short man that makes, that makes Martin Sheen look uh, more guilty in life? Speaking of which, uh, maybe the orange thing has to do with Agent Orange. If this is the time of Vietnam, we're about to get an Apocalypse Now, Agent Orange being a thing during Vietnam that was a horrible thing that happened to people, maybe that's the time with Orange. Maybe that was hmm. in the subconscious of Coppola as he was pondering you know, milliseconds of apocalypse now living in the 70s. Just a thought. Just going to throw that out there. So since you bring up apocalypse now, it's interesting to note there's kind of two sides to the origin of this whole Godfather complete novel for TV thing. One of which in the biography I read by Michael Shoemaker, he says that it, it was always Coppola's intention to one day edit these two movies together. That he decided if I'm gonna make a sequel, it's gonna be a part two, so much to the point that one that you would be able to interconnect the two of them and watch them as one big movie, which is why he got Gordon Willis back to do cinematography. Dean Tavolaris did the uh, production design again. Nina Rota comes back to does the score because he wanted everything so consistent. Then I've read other sources online saying that this whole thing was done so Coppola could get money to help finance Apocalypse Now. 
which was running over budget and he was stuck in the jungle when this uh, thing aired on TV. Were um, they making a movie in 1977? Yeah. 1979. It really yeah. takes that long to make that. I mean, I guess it's notoriously this huge, crazy production. Yeah, they they started it in like 76 and shot through 77 into early 78. The person that was really in charge of this Godfather TV miniseries was uh, Barry Malkin, who was the editor on The Rain People. And he would later be the editor on Godfather Part 3. He was in charge of putting the whole thing together. And he had to go around the, the country to track down the actors to dub uh, like TV friendly swear words and things. There's one scene, one of the added scenes where it is blatantly obvious that that is not Marlon Brando speaking. It's like the worst uh, Marlon Brando is Vita Corleone impression. It's a Barry Malkin puts this together, takes it to the Philippines to show the Coppola and Coppola is so in the throes of madness from shooting apocalypse now that though it was screened like I, I pushed play and here it is coppola didn't really watch it interesting and then huh. barry malkin had to like okay uh, you seem really busy francis i'll just uh take this and head back to the u.s <laughs> and finish the sound mix so when this show when this showed on tv was it popular like it must have been because I couldn't imagine, like, being at home in 1977 and being like, I can watch these great movies at home and seemingly unedited, which is interesting. Like, if this is what was shown on TV, there's, like, breasts in it. They swear it's hella violent. Like, I can't imagine that those were – because we have the version that aired on HBO. Yeah. I can't imagine that it aired with the swear words and, and the nudity. But, I mean, like, Roots had nudity in it. You know, like, maybe it's special when it's a TV movie that everyone's going to stick. I don't know. It's interesting to think. Because, like, the version we saw was the HBO one. So it's possible they re-put in stuff. But it's it's also possible that maybe they just were like, fuck it, we're just going to show everything because this is, like, an important American piece of art and let's just leave it untouched. You know, it just depends on who's in charge of the, you know, the TV studio station. But like the version I saw, I was shocked. Being like, this is pretty violent. There's nudity. Is that scene with Michael's Sicilian wife naked? Is that in the original movie? Yes, it is. I don't remember. Why don't I remember that? <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> How can I forget that scene? What's wrong with me? But watch this. That's is like one I'm of the scenes I distinctly remember. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did not. I guess I was wrapped up in the story that I did not remember that at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of these scenes where uh, like a man reacts to seeing a naked woman with like total blankness. She takes off her clothes and Al Pacino is just kind of staring at her like dead face. Like, uh. <laughs> and something similar happened into like uh, some Frank Sinatra detective movie. I don't know if it was called The First Deadly Sin or something else. But like, yeah, a woman like takes off her her clothes in front of him and he cuts to his face and he's just dead eyed staring straight into the camera. Uh. 
that point, Frank Sinatra has seen thousands of women naked, so it was like no different than just like having cereal for breakfast, you know? Like it just doesn't mean anything at a certain point, I guess. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, did not do as high ratings as expected. Crazy. That doesn't make sense. Like this is pre-home video. You know, it's like pre-home video, so you could only see these movies again if they were re-released in theaters. Yeah, and like, and it's not a normal like. I don't think movies this big that recently were shown on TV back then. Right? The Godfather like, Part One, so both Godfather Part One and Part Two had been shown on TV. Interesting. Um, Really? Godfather Part One was shown on TV like right before the release of Part Two, and then Part Two was shown on TV. It doesn't uh, Wikipedia doesn't tell me when. It's probably on Wikipedia somewhere, but I'm not gonna look it up. I'm just not gonna do it. <laughs> but yeah, it says uh, ratings not as high as expected, possibly because both films had already aired, albeit separately, on NBC in previous years. But still. You know, PBS reruns Downton Abbey all the time. Yeah. People just like that show. And like, yeah, I, like maybe Betamax was around, but I like home video rentals weren't really, hadn't really taken off yet. That was like in the 80s. So if you wanted to see The Godfather again, this was, this was your chance to see it. I mean, maybe. It wasn't a hit. Because you think people would be like, oh, got to watch that movie again. Weird. What were they watching instead in 19... What, what, like, Thornbirds? Like, what was on at the same time in 1977? It was so much better than the Godfather saga. What season of Barney Miller was everyone so excited about that was more important? <laughs> Give me a break, America. I remember it was a big deal when I was a kid. This is a tangent. Uh, it was the mid-'80s because I'm old. They showed 2001, A Space Odyssey on TV. And it was a big deal. I remember like my family and Alice being like, oh, well, we gotta, we gotta watch that. That's gonna be amazing. And they had it where the, the local radio station had this, the, the sound played through this radio station so you can pull up the soundtrack on your stereo and turn it up. This is like before surround sound was in homes. And so we had watched 2001 on our TV, pretty small TV, but blast the sound on the local radio station that coordinated it with the, with the broadcast of 2001. And it was amazing. And I remember like when the Star Wars movies showed on TV in the 80s, it was a big deal, you know, or the James Bond movies like that, because like, this was like not many video stores around. Yeah, I or, don't I don't think HBO was around at the time. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Roots aired in 77, but in January. So it wasn't really competing against Roots. Yeah. But, you know, it just like, this is like a close enough to when everyone in the world watched the end of MASH. That was early 80s. So like people, you know, and back then too, there was only like five stations. This is pre-cable TV. So it's crazy to think that there was like a few other options that people would rather watch than the Godfather movies on a, on a prime time. So I'm, I'm assuming they didn't show this on a Wednesday. Like in my mind, it was like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, that there's more important things to watch, I guess. I don't understand. Like, this should have been the number one show in America that weekend. People don't appreciate things until much later, I guess. They don't know what they have. They don't appreciate what they have. Let's see. This aired November 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th in 1977. Hmm. 
So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to look up what else was on TV on these specific dates. <laughs> Call Mr. Nielsen up and let him tell us. <laughs> you know, that's uh, it, it's interesting, though. It's, uh, yeah, because you'd think in your mind, like, this would still, like, because these movies now in 2020 are still talked about and still much loved. And... So it's just weird that like back then when it's more recent and more even in the public's mind that it wasn't the most popular TV event of its time. It's interesting. The Atari came out in 1977. So maybe everyone was busy playing Pong or whatever and didn't want to watch The Godfather. So here's something I thought of. So Coppola makes, you know, big movie. It's got this famous figure in it. Vito Corleone and then his son Michael you know takes over the family business and at the end you of the first movie you hopefully realize that he is like you know he, he's a murderer villain now and not in the kind murderer crime boss kind of way that his father was and then in part two he explores the origins of the father figure and then Many, many decades later, not many, his friend George Lucas decides, you know what? I made a movie that's about a father and son, the son not exactly following in the father's path. Yeah. Now I'm going to explore the origins of the father, but I'm <laughs> going to do it over three whole, I'm not going to do it as one hour of one movie. I'm going to do it three whole movies. It's the reverse, where the father net is the villain, and the son ends up being the really good person. So these guys just clearly had dead issues, is what you're saying. Like the Lucas and Coppola, like his, was dealing with some dead issues. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? I guess. But isn't it interesting? Like also, Star Wars and Godfather, both movies made. I feel like without them really knowing the rest of what the story would be. Like, even though Star Wars begins with episode four, and it always did, right? Like, even the initial screening of that said it was an episode four. Is that correct? I don't remember anymore. I always remembered episode four showing up and being like, huh? But supposedly, and I mean, Vulcan video is closed, so we can't just watch the original versions anymore without paying hundreds of dollars for them. Supposedly, that doesn't show up. In, okay. in the crawl, it's just uh, Star Wars, A New Hope, and then and then the prologue text comes up. But it's like they both made movies where they kind of made the one. And then they, because they were did so well, it's like, well, you got to come up with more now. And then in both regards, the part two is much considered better than the first one. Like Empire Strikes Back is much more like than the first Star Wars. And much Not darker. Much darker. Godfather 2, also much darker and much more like loved than the first one. So I think it's really interesting that they both kind of had the same thing going on around the same time. Anything else? So this is the last time we'll talk about these movies till we get to part three. Is there any other Godfather thing that we need to... One thing, I guess I haven't brought it up in the past two movies, and this is, is my last chance to bring it up, is <laughs> so while I was watching... The Godfather and Part Two. I was also watching the the series, 
of what we do in the shadows, <laughs> which is absolutely hilarious if you can track it down and watch it. What channel is it on? It's on the FX network. The FX, okay. Um, anyway, so the vampires, they have a, their familiar, you know, who they cannot live without and does all of the stuff in the human world that they can't, but they also treat like shit. And then watching The Godfather, I'm like, oh, Tom Hagen is their familiar. <laughs> he, That's so like, true. He has a real job. He's a lawyer, right? Oh. He does all this stuff for them in the legitimate world of laws and stuff. And yeah. they cannot exist without him. But no one really, no one except for maybe Sonny really treats him like a full member of the family. Yeah. In fact, I think even Sonny snaps at him once and says, I wouldn't be dealing with this if I had a Sicilian consigliere. And Robert Duvall really like wears that, wears that chip just on his face in certain scenes where you can tell that this character felt really at ease and like he's a member of this family. And then all of a sudden, you know, now he's reminded that he's not. not yeah. And that's the one at the end of part two, when Michael has lost everybody, I because he's killed them or they've died, you know, he's also lost Tom Hagen. He hasn't killed him, but he's alienated him to the point that this guy doesn't have any like intimate connection with him anymore as a brother or an adopted brother. It's interesting. It's very interesting. And I almost think like his character is one of the more sad, sad characters in this series. Because it's like he is always going to be kind of an outsider and like kind of always wants to be like, just like Fredo wants to really be more loved by Michael than he is, but he doesn't turn on him. Like Fredo does like he's loyal to the end and still gets kind of cast aside. And it's really sad, you know, and he's always constantly being like, why, why, like, why, why am I being demoted to this? Or why am I like, I've always been loyal I've been the most loyal. I'm the most trusted person always and it's really it's that's really uh like i think if you could ever make a modern day spin-off or backdoor version of godfather it'd be interesting to make a movie about tom hagen and do like little tom hagen being brought into this family being like because they kind of allude that he's like a homeless kid or something and sunny finds him on the streets and brings him into his mafia family and wouldn't that be an interesting story and maybe that's just what Robert Duvall brings because I feel the same way about his Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm like, I would love to see a movie just about him and like what his point of view is and like during all this or before or whatever. So like Robert Duvall just has like he's, it's interesting because like he can play really tough like we'll see soon in Apocalypse Now. But then he also kind of has his vulner this intense vulnerability like in the Godfather movies. Like he's never, you never see him get really angry. You never see him loses temper he's really kind of like the maybe the nicest person of, of all, everybody in this movie like like him and like he's like the one who really kind of wants to do right within the world of this corrupt place even when he goes to hollywood in part one and deals with that producer he wants it to work out he wants it to be okay <laughs> like i don't think he wants to cut off a horse's head and throw it in the guy's bed yeah there's like and there's like a definite like like the whole time he's hoping to get everybody's uh, you know, appreciation and everybody like they, he really wants to be accepted in this family so badly and it never quite works out for him.
anything else? No, I, you know, like, it's interesting. Like, we just watched these two movies. And I guess it's a testament to how good they are. I was very excited to watch it again. I was like, really pumped to watch this edited together version. That's how good those movies are. That like, they are both really long. And within the same month, I couldn't wait to watch them again. Like, that's kind of rare, you know? Yeah. I was hesitant to watch this only because of how long I knew it was. But once I started watching it, I, I did not, I fully did not intend to watch three and a half hours of this, like, unbroken. But I did. Because I was just so yeah. caught up in it. I was intrigued by the new stuff put in, but still just as compelled and caught up in in what I loved the first time about about the first movie and the second movie and the different timelines and whatnot. And it's you know it's a great movie because every time you watch it, you ex- you experience something new about yeah. it. It's true. There, you know what? I think this couple is going places. I think he's <laughs> makes some good things. So I'm pumped because our next episode is going to be maybe our biggest one yet. We're going to be doing Apocalypse Now and watch four versions of Apocalypse Now. We'll be watching the original. We'll be watching the redo, redux, however you say it. The final cut, because we didn't know that the other two weren't. And the work print, which I have, like the seven-hour poor-quality work print, and on top of it, Hearts of Darkness giving us the whole, so really five movies. So it's going to be, like, maybe that'll be, like, an eight-hour episode. We'll be going deep into that. Maybe we need two bottles of wine for that one. Because there's going to be a lot to talk about with Apocalypse Now, not just because of the versions, but because it's such a rich, great, amazing movie. And it's the last uh, hurrah for Coppola making movies within this kind of ho- new Hollywood 70s, you know, because then after this, it kind of all falls apart in a way. So I'm excited for that. I'm pumped. I am very excited as well, because as I've gotten older, and this is how you know I'm an old man, is I love Apocalypse Now more and more. Yeah. As, as uh, I watch it or as I get older, I don't, you know, I don't know. I think, you know, as men get older, we love movies about wars. Why is that? Why? Like, that's such a weird thing. I know. That's a a Patton Oswalt bit. He talks about how, like, there are two things that happen to men as they get older. And one of them is you become very into World War II. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as the career of Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis has proved, old men love World War II. And I believe it was a quote from Phil Hartman in the movie Small Soldiers. He says, I think World War II is my favorite war. (laughs) (laughs) I hate war. (laughs) And I think... Yeah, war sucks. It makes no sense. And that's something that will be touched on. And that's why Apocalypse, I think, is one of the better war movies. And we'll go into that because it isn't really glorifying it in the way that other movies do. Or maybe it does to be argued and talked about. That's the next episode. Who knows when we'll do that one? Because we have to watch five movies. They're all long or very long. There's no short version. It might be a few more weeks extra than normal. Though we've been moving pretty quick through COVID. Like, I'm impressed by our uh, ability to fly through these couple of movies. Yeah. But yeah, we've got five movies to watch, people. So it's going to be 
it might be a, a, a day or two longer than normal. Yeah, I, I enjoy commentaries and special features, but I don't know that I will partake of all of those before the next episode because, uh, you know, we want to get it out uh, relatively soon. Which, which one are you going to start with? Are you going to go with the original or are you going to go with the newest one, the final cut? I think I'm going to I'm going to watch the original cuz I haven't seen that version in a while. I think I'm going to watch the original, then watch Hearts of Darkness and then get into Redux and special features. And I may even watch the John Malkovich movie that's based on the Joseph Conrad book. Ah. Isn't that also called Hearts of Darkness, correct? Uh, like singular, Heart of Darkness. It's a direct adaptation of, of the Joseph Conrad novella. Yeah, I think I'm going to watch that too to really get, because I read the book in college and it's kind of boring. It's okay. I read the book a few years ago and was profoundly bored by it. I only finished it because it was so short. I've decided I'm going to listen to an audio book as you know, we're getting ready for this next episode. Maybe now that I'm an old, an old man, uh, I'll know why men seem to be obsessed with Heart of Darkness and making a movie out of it. <laughs> As is evident, we love talking about movies. We love talking about the Godfathers, plural. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening to them. There's always, they're great movies because there's always something new there. And even now there's stuff I'm sure that we didn't touch on or get to talk about. And we've got one more chapter of the Corleone family, but not next. You can uh, follow us on social media, on Twitter, at The Director's Wall. I'm at AJGO, also on Letterboxd, under the same thing. You can email us direct at directorswall at gmail.com. We're now on Google Podcasts, so you can listen to us there as well in addition to Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And uh, thanks for listening. We hope everything is going well for yep. everyone out there. It's really uneven out there. It's, it's uh, a pandemic has died down for some people, not for others. Not for us in Texas. <laughs> Definitely not for us in Texas. But you know what? Movies are great entertainment, a great distraction from the horrible things of the world. So if you're lucky enough to be able to take a break from your hard life and watch The Godfather Legacy or anything at all, uh, God bless you. All right. So we will return. We promise you we will return after we go upriver into the heart of darkness watching five movies. <laughs> But to make one episode, we're not going to break it up like it with this. We're going to do one big epic episode. Great. Well, thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>